everybody. Everyone can hear me, hopefully, on the computer. Um, it's really good to be here, and it's always nice to have such a nice introduction, which is totally unwarranted from Newt. Um, but I was thinking, sitting here tonight, just how thankful I am to be in New Zealand right now, <laughs> knowing what's going on back home, and even though vaccines are rolling out, that not only can we be together, but we can be together without masks and sit very close together in this room. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, so I'm just really grateful to be here in New Zealand and here with you all tonight. So Jonah, we're on Jonah. Uh, the book of Jonah really offers us an insight into God's grace. And it shows us how central grace really is to God and to his character, to the way that he works in the world. Um, and as we know, if you've been following the last couple of weeks, um, the setting for Jonah is in the city of Nineveh. And in the first two chapters, we got to see the story mostly from Jonah's perspective, um, which we are the part of the story we're probably more familiar with, that he runs away, ends up on a boat, they cast him out, the seas go down, he gets eaten by the fish and spit back out. And now in chapter three, we get to shift our focus a little bit and begin to see the story a little bit more from the Ninevites' perspective, how they perceive this Jonah in their midst and how they react to him. In Jonah's lifetime, Nineveh was an important trading city in the Assyrian Empire. Later, it would become the most important city in the empire, but at Jonah's time, it was just one of several important trading cities. Uh, and it sits on the Tigris River in what is now Mosul, Iraq. Um, Syria is just to the west. Turkey is just to the north. It was an important crossroads kind of place where uh, people from all cultures and places intermingled with one another. And for a lot of different reasons, the... Israelites, like Jonah, those who lived in Judah, saw Nineveh as the epitome of godlessness. It was the city where godlessness existed in its purest form, where people were furthest from God because they were worshiping multiple idols and didn't think anything of the God of Israel as being the one true God. And by Jonah's time, many within Judah, and it seems like Judah, Jonah himself, understood their special relationship with God to be restricted to them. That to have God's special blessing meant you were part of Israel. You could define yourself by your language, by your clothing, by the neighbors that you have, by the way you worshiped. You had all these cultural markers that said, we are God's chosen people. In many ways, Israelites like Jonah identified their culture in opposition. They were who they were because they were not these other things. And this view of the world is not unique <laughs> to Jonah or to his time. We continue to do this now. We continue to define ourselves by what we are not. Whether we do it on purpose or not, in our heads we are very often defining ourselves by what we are not. I am what I am not goes through our mind far too often. So when Jonah heard God's original instruction to go to Nineveh, what he really heard was God calling him to proclaim grace to a group of people that he fundamentally believed did not deserve it. The Ninevites were the most godless people that Jonah in his time could think of. And so when he heard a call to go to them, he was hearing God telling him to go to this awful group of people that he this total other group that he could not in any way bring himself to preach the gospel to. And what God wanted him to do was to go to these people 
and say that the one true God, the one you ignore and don't believe exists, loves you, has a plan for you, and wants you to worship him. Who in your life do you think of as other? As not necessarily a person, but maybe a group of people or a type of people that, if you're honest with yourself, just you struggle to think that they're worthy of God's grace. If God were to reach out to you tonight and give you a message to go to those people, would you go any more willingly than Jonah did? You can answer that at home. (laughs) See, Jonah believed that God's love was only for deserving Israelites and not for anyone else. And we too often think of our faith in terms of its relevance to ourselves and to people that are more like us. Maybe not people that are already in our church, but people that are generally like us in whatever variety of ways that we want to think about them. But the reality is that God's grace doesn't work that way. God's grace, his love, his steadfast kindness is for everybody. From God's point of view, there is no other. There is only his children that he loves and cares for and made in his image. And the reality is that God's grace is for everybody and none of us deserve it. It doesn't matter if you were an Israelite in Jonah's time or have been a Christian your whole life. None of us deserve the grace that God gives us. And so tonight we're going to answer three questions. Well, partially answer three questions. The questions are, what is grace? Why do we need grace? And how do we accept God's grace? So why do we, what is grace, why do we need it, and how do we accept it? So first, what is grace? Well, in simple terms, uh, grace is God's enduring promise to love his people and to rescue us from our own sin and our foolishness. And in the Older Testament, there's a couple of Hebrew words that are used to really talk about this idea. And one of these words is hesed. And this word hesed, when used in conjunction with God's name, really communicates the idea of God's steadfast love. In a lot of Bible translations, that's how you'll see that word in your Old Testament, is steadfast love. And one of the most poignant examples in the scriptures of the use of hesed is in Exodus chapter 34. So by the time we get to Exodus 34, Moses had received the Ten Commandments, he had come down the mountain, and he had seen the people that he left there 40 days earlier worshiping a golden calf. And in anger, he throws down the tablets and they shatter. And in Exodus 34, he has reascended the mountain and he is within God's presence about to obtain the second commandment, or the Ten Commandments for the second time. And in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, we read this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This idea of hesed is not just present in Exodus. It goes back even further than that. We go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, we get to the story of Abram before he even becomes Abraham. And like Jonah, Abram hears a call from God to leave his home and to go someplace far away. Unlike Jonah, he gets up and he goes immediately. And in verse 3 of chapter 12, God promises Abram that all peoples on earth 
will be blessed through you. This is the so-called Abrahamic promise, that God is making a commitment to Abraham to bless all people in the world through his family. And Abraham's family becomes the people of Israel. It is the people of Israel, God's selected people, that are supposed to go out into the world and tell people about God, about the God of Israel and the grace that he has and the love that he has for the people that he has created. But by the time of Jodah, of Jonah, I keep wanting to say Jonah and Judah at the same time, and it's getting very mixed in my head. Ugh. By the time of Jonah and Judah, there we go, that idea, that promise had gotten lost. They had looked, they had taken that promise that is meant for the world and they turned it completely inward and were looking only at themselves. But God's grace was not only for them. And it's not only for us as Christians. It is central to who God is. It is central to what God is doing in the world. And it is central to our mission as Christians to proclaim that good news that God loves his people and has a people set aside for himself. We are to proclaim that to the world. That is part of what we do as Christians, to say that God's grace is real and that it knows no end and that he loves each and every one of his children. So grace is God's steadfast commitment to rescue his people. But that begs the question, why do we need it in the first place? I think as Christians we assume, well, God's grace is a good thing, but, but why, why do we need it in the first place? That's our second question tonight. Why do we need rescuing in the first place? Why did Jonah need to go to Nineveh and proclaim 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown? Several years ago, I read a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. Has anybody read that here? Heads nodding. It's a very good book. Um, if you're not familiar with it, the book is really uh, a modern retelling of a lot of different Bible stories. So what Yancey does is takes a lot of biblical stories and puts them into modern settings so they make a lot more sense uh, to our modern ears. And one of my favorite stories in there is a retelling of the prodigal son story. And in this story, he talks about a teenage girl from uh, upstate Michigan who at 16, 17 years old has had enough of her parents, thinks they're way too old-fashioned and she needs to go do her own thing. So she runs away to Detroit. Not long after arriving, she gets herself into all kinds of trouble, falls in with the wrong crowd, finds herself on drugs, finds herself making lots of bad choices with her body. And after a few years, she finds herself sick and basically out on the streets wondering, what has she done with her life? She hits rock bottom and begins to wonder about her family back home that she abandoned and hasn't spoken to or thought of in two or three years. And she gets to a point where she decides, well, maybe they'll still have me. Maybe it's time to go home. And so she calls and leaves a message on her parents' answering machine and says, I'll be on a bus tomorrow night. Maybe I'll see you. If you're not there, maybe I'll just keep going to Canada and figure it out. So as she sits on this seven-hour-long bus ride, her mind is overwhelmed with how she's going to apologize to her parents. Will they even show up? Can she say enough words to beg their forgiveness for the horrible way that she has treated them these last several years? Can she bear to share her shame with them for the things that she's had to do. And as she gets close to the town where she lives, the bus driver says, okay, we're going to stop, and you'll have 15 minutes here, and then the bus is continuing on. So in her mind is, I have 15 minutes to decide my future. Will my family be there, or will I be on the bus? 
And as she approaches, she gets off the bus, doesn't take her bag off yet because she's not sure that her family will be there. She goes inside, and not only does she see her mother and her father, but her cousins, her uncles, her aunts, her neighbors, her friends, all huge crowds standing, not just standing there willing to say hi, but with signs, welcome home. Welcome home. It doesn't matter what she had done. It didn't matter to them that she had left. So why do we need grace? We need grace because we are all prodigal sons and prodigal daughters of God. It's our very nature to run away from him, to flee his loving kindness. Like wayward teenagers, we wander off believing that we know better, that we in our independent minds can figure out a better way to live than what God is doing for us. And he lets us go every time. But every time we wisen up and we turn around, God is waiting there with a sign, welcome home, arms open, with God's family around to embrace us. I was thinking about this idea of being a prodigal, and honestly, I struggle with it. I think there are some Christians that I have met whose stories are more dramatic in how they came to faith, but for a lot of Christians, myself included, we kind of grew up in a good life, right? Like I was never got in trouble at school or did anything too crazy, and my pathway to believing was always kind of straightforward, but how did I think of my own self as a, a prodigal? And I think where it really sinks home to me is this idea of independence and the idea that very often I make very big life decisions, like, say, joining the Foreign Service and moving to New Zealand, for example, uh, without really ever consulting God. Just trusting in my own instincts and my own decision-making abilities and my own uh, desires and wants, and I just go about my path and only absentmindedly, like, oh, did I ask Christian friends about that? Did I pray at all about that decision? Am I really seeing my relationship with God as a father-son relationship, or is it more transactional? And when I sit in those moments, it gets real uncomfortable, and I realize that that's, at least for me, how this idea of being the prodigal works out. That I do need to turn back because I do wander. And I need to turn back and trust that he'll be there. Saying, okay, stupid, you did it again. But you're there. So grace, this idea of grace, is God's steadfast love for us. And we need his grace just as the Ninevites did because we run away from him. We need it just like Jonah did because he literally ran away from God and tried to hide. And so our third question tonight, now that we've talked about what grace is and um, why we need it, is how do we accept God's grace in our lives? And we can look to the Ninevites. I said that we're turning our perspective from Jonah to the Ninevites and how they respond. And this is the part where we can really see how the Ninevites responded to Jonah's call. So Jonah preached to them, and this is what they, they did. And this is in um, verses 5 and 6. The Ninevites believed God. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. In more direct terms, the Ninevites believed and repented. Belief and repentance. The Christian life is really a journey of believing and repenting. 
As we come to faith in Christ, we have an initial period where we believe and repent of our old way of life, and that's where the Ninevites are. They're immediately believing in God's message, and they're immediately repenting. But as we go on through life, we have to constantly do this. It's not a, it's not a once, it's not a one-time thing. It's a journey that we have to decide every day to continue to believe that God is gracious, to continue to repent of the way that we are living, and to continue to see our lives in relationship to God. We have to continue to believe that He loves us, that He's there looking out for us, and that His love is not just for us, but that He intends to use us to share this grace, this idea of His love with others in our lives. In verse 10, um, the response to the Ninevites repenting and believing is this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction that He had threatened. Accepting God's grace is a habit. It's a way of being that we need to train ourselves in on a regular basis. As we go through life and we face the many challenges that it brings upon us, we can look at those things with fear and frustration, or we can, in the midst of all that, trust, believe, and repent and know that God is gracious, that God loves us, and He continues to work in our lives, that he made a promise to us and that promise will never go away. Accepting that truth takes practice and it takes time. And I think that's another tricky thing for me to think about is how, how do we make this, how does this grace, this idea of building grace as a habit actually work out in my life? And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about that Hebrew word I said earlier, earlier, Hesed, which is an Older Testament word. There's a New Testament word, agape, which is Jesus is used is to tell us to go and love others. But it's not have nice feelings for people. It is to go and actively love others. Both hesed and agape are these words used by God about himself and how he loves us, and they're always active. Our habit of growing in grace is about being actively engaged in doing things that change us and actively moving towards other people. And I think a lot of times when we think about improving ourselves in terms of being better Christians or deepening our faith, I think we too often think of big things like, oh, I'm going to go on a mission trip and do this thing, or I'm going to give up everything and go be a missionary, or I'm going to give more money or whatever, these bigger things. But I think a lot of this habit of building a habit of grace is about the little things. It's about trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes on a daily basis, when that person cuts you off on the highway on the way to work, maybe they had a fight that morning with their spouse. When that person at work is being a real jerk lately, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes. We don't know what other people are feeling and going through. And instead of immediately going to judgment, we need, one of the ways that we can practice this habit of grace is to put ourselves, just take a step back and breathe and think about what might be going on if there's a way that we can help and serve. It's really the little habits that we build like that over time that make a difference. It's not the big things. Accepting God's grace also means that we need to recognize that there is no other. In that Exodus passage that I referred to earlier, God is proclaiming his name to Moses. If you have a Bible with you and you're looking at those verses or any time in the Older Testament that you see Lord, the word Lord, in it's usually lower capital letters, 
Um, that's a Hebrew translation of God's actual name in Hebrew, which is Yahweh or sometimes Jehovah. And what those four letters in Hebrew translate to is I am who I am. God's name is I am who I am. He doesn't define himself in opposition to anything. God is who he is. And as Christians, we need not to define ourselves as what we are not, but to accept who we are in Christ and define ourselves that way. As God says he is who he is, we need to be who we are in Christ and to live our lives outward in a way that doesn't reflect us setting ourselves up as us versus them, because there is no them. There is only us. Each and every one of us are made in the image of God, and we are his people. And as Christians, we are to share God's love with other people. There is no them. We can't look to the Ninevites in our lives as others. We just have to see them as God's children. Now, Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites at all. He didn't exactly go willingly, but eventually he did kind of suck it up and go. He swallowed his pride, and he went and preached the message that he was told to preach. And that's the other part of the story we need to consider. Jonah wasn't a random person. He was an established prophet of Israel. He was a spiritual leader in the Israelite community. But he still had things to repent of. Most notably, hating the Ninevites. He had to repent of that and go. And when he did, he saw amazing things happen. He obeyed. He went God did something amazing. Jonah preached the worst sermon of all time. I mean, his, I need to find it in here. For, he says, this is his whole sermon, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he walked off the stage, okay? If I'd have done that, everyone would have gotten home earlier. That'd be great. That's all he says. And then God converts an entire city in an instant. Jonah repented he believed enough to go, and he obeyed God, and God converted the Ninevites. God's grace is predictable in its steadfastness, but God's actions are never predictable. But if we can develop a habit of believing and repenting and obeying, we can watch God do amazing things. So tonight we've walked through Jonah 3, and we've seen in it a picture of God's grace. We've looked at God's grace as his steadfast love, his hesed for us, and determined that we need his grace because we run from him, just like Jonah ran from his responsibilities. And finally, we talked about accepting God's grace as a practice of believing and repenting and obeying as we walk through the Christian life. So I'll invite the worship team to come back up, and as we sing these songs together, I invite you to take some time to examine your own life, how you are believing and what you may need to repent of as we sing about God's amazing grace.